For those that remain in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus and chapter 9. And we're hoping to make our way through the entire chapter together this morning, Leviticus chapter 9. What is the number one reason why non-Christians say they do not want to become a Christian? I think what I have heard most is that Christians are hypocrites. And so why would I want to become a hypocrite? Now, I would contend that you already are, and so if church is full of hypocrites, that's the place you want to be because that's your kind. But uh, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But it is interesting that the number one reason why non-Christians seem to say that they are against Christianity is that it does not appear to them that Christians actually live out what they say they believe. Now, I think part of that is, as our friend and brother Tim Keller has aptly said, ably said for us, that they believe that the message of Christianity is that Christians think they're perfect. And if that is what the message of Christianity is, then indeed we are hypocrites because there is no one perfect but Jesus Christ. If, however, the message of Christianity is that we are sinners in need of a perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, then the place where you would expect to see the most sinners collected together on any given week would be in church on Sunday. But it's also intriguing to me that that answer, that response, that reason, if I can put it that way, is an external reason to the individual. Why is it that other people's behaviors or responses dictates what you believe or do not believe? I think then the real reason one of the major reasons behind why non-Christians do not want to become Christians is that they believe following God, submitting to God, obeying God, denies their true self and their free expression thereof. I just have to be me and I just have to be free. And if I go to church, if I submit to God, if I listen to Him and His way of doing things, that's going to stifle me and my creativity and, and, and who I am as an individual. I want to be my true, authentic self, and Christianity wants to put me into a box. And so that's, that's the real reason, I think, at the core of why individuals do not want to follow Christ, submit to Christ. They do not want to admit that they are sinners, and therefore they do not want to look to Jesus Christ as their Savior from that sin. They do not see, by and large, worship as a blessing, as a positive thing. They see worship, closeness to God, if God even exists in their mind, as a negative thing. And what I want us to see from the text this morning is that worship is a blessing. To be in the presence of God and have God's presence in us is the greatest blessing that we can possibly know. To be known by God and to know God is the, the greatest blessing of the human experience. It is not stifling. It is not oppressive. It is not a negative thing. No, it is a positive thing. 
It, it, it actually enables us to be who God created us to be. We can actually be compassionate and kind and united and gracious and merciful and content and full of joy and love and truth and all of these things. That's what Christianity allows us to do. That's what gives us the ability and the desire to be who God created us to be. That's our true self, if you want to use that lingo. And here in chapter 9, for the first time since Mount Sinai all the way back in the book of Exodus, which actually time frame wise isn't that long ago, but it's a bit of time has transpired, God's presence is going to show up. The nation of Israel had last seen it on Mount Sinai. The thunder and the lightning and the voice of God, and they were quite content to allow Moses to go up and uh, will remain behind. There was a fear that crept over the people when they saw the presence of God. And now, after instructions for building the tabernacle, after the tabernacle has actually been constructed, after instructions for the offerings in order to be able to approach God's presence and for God's presence to appear here in chapter 9, for the first time in the book of Leviticus, and the first time since about halfway through Exodus, God's presence shows up tangibly and powerfully. So follow along if you would. Leviticus chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then verses 22 through 24. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Dropping down to verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of God. What we have then, verses 1 through 6, is a preparation for worship. Worship ought never to be frivolous. It ought never to be thoughtless. It should not be treated cavalierly or carelessly. Worship is a serious reality, and the nation of Israel is taking it seriously. Notice in the first place the reality of consecration. This was the whole chapter last Sunday that Luke brought for us ably. Notice in verse 35, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, 835, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. 
To be in the presence of a thrice holy God as an unholy being is a fearful thing. And so there is a preparation for worship that begins with consecration. Notice in verse 1, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. It is on the eighth day that anything that was born to the nation of Israel as far as livestock was to be committed to the Lord. It was on the eighth day that male children were to be circumcised. Remember that Paul said, circumcised the eighth day. Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. All male children were circumcised on the eighth day. It was on the eighth day that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rose to life from the dead. You remember Palm Sunday and then seven days. It was on the eighth day, the second Sunday, that he rises to life from the dead. On seven days, God created heaven and earth. And on the eighth day, Jesus rises to life from the grave and institutes a new creation. And it is interesting then that Christians begin to worship on the eighth day, the first day of the week, but also the eighth day after a week where the Jews would have worshipped on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. The eighth day is important, and it's important here that the priests have been consecrating themselves for an entire week. And now, at the top of the second week, now we are ready to begin the process of worship. And now we are ready for the presence of God to appear. And so for us, do we take this seriously? And I'm not talking only about what we have just done and what we're currently doing. Do we take seriously that we live in the presence of a thrice holy God? Our worship is not just on Sundays. Our worship is every moment of every day. We are in his presence and his presence is in us. In the member, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Are we consecrating ourselves to piggyback on what Pastor Luke preached to us last Sunday? Now notice the lineup then of offerings, and the order is very important. First, there is a sin offering, both for Aaron and then for the people. So notice confession and atonement. First part of verse 2, he said to Aaron, Moses says to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering. First part of verse 3, say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering. Worship begins with confession and is only made possible because of atonement. So the sin offering appears first. First, for Aaron and his sons. The priest needs atonement. And notice something that is even more intriguing in this passage. Leviticus 4, and in the instructions for the sin offering, it says if it's a leader of the people of the priest, a bull needs to be offered. But here we notice a bull calf. That's intriguing. And Jewish commentators have long believed that the reason why it was a bull calf is because of Aaron's sin in particular with the golden calf, the idolatry at the base of the mountain. In this only here, in this particular circumstances, Aaron instructed to offer for sacrifice not an adult bull, but a bull calf for his atonement. Believing, perhaps because, as he stands there to make atonement, he's aware of his sin in a general, generic sense. But, oh, Aaron is very aware of his actual, literal sin, his, his specific time of sin, when he led the nation of Israel to worship a false god, or I should say worship a statue, a golden calf, 
as worship to the one true God. As Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron is down below directly disobeying the first two. And as he stands there, he's well aware of his own sin. He needs to confess his sin. He needs atonement for his sin. And then the nation of Israel needs to confess their sin, and they need atonement for their sin. Worship of the holy God begins with an admittance of our unholiness. And the proper prescribed sacrifice so that we can be made holy. And for us, praise be to God, that's Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our sin offering. Our unrighteousness or the penalty thereof laid on him. And his righteousness given to us. Notice thirdly then, there's full and free commitment. Back half of verse 2, a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, to offer them before the Lord. Back half of verse 3, and a calf and a lamb, both a year, without ble- a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering. First the sin offering, then the burnt offering. And this is the only offering, as we have discovered, that is cont- entirely consumed. There's nothing left over. This offering is symbolic of Certainly atonement, it's all throughout any time there is blood offered. But this offering is of full and free commitment. There is no reservation and no hesitation on behalf of the worshipers. God, all that I am and all that I have is yours. It's all yours and it was all burnt up. Not even the priest could benefit from any leftovers of this offering. It was consumed in its entirety. So our sin needs to be atoned for. We need to confess our sin and have Christ's blood applied to it. And then we offer ourselves up as full and free sacrifices to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a full commitment. It's not that God gets this and then this is left over. It's God gets everything. And then notice the last two offerings. The only offering not offered is the guilt offering because the guilt offering is for specific sins that require reparations or restitution, and that is not the case in this particular ceremony. But we have the grain offering, verse 4. And, uh, verse four, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, sacrifice of the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil for the day the Lord will appear to you. And they offer actually the grain offering first, as we'll see in just a moment. The grain offering as a thanksgiving to God. Everything that we have comes from him. And so it is not just spiritual blessings, but physical blessings as well. The heart of the worshiper should always be one of humility and gratitude. Thank you, God, for this. And so in thanksgiving, they give up some of their harvest to him, mixed with oil and salt, the salt of the covenant, that perpetual covenant between them and God, or more specifically between God and them. And then the peace offering, which is the fellowship offering, the celebration offering, where part of the animal is consumed as the offering, and part is given to the priest, and the rest is given to the people to consume. It's, it's a communal, uh, celebratory, thanksgiving barbecue for the results of atonement. Thank you, God, that we as unholy people can live in the presence of a holy God. <laughs> Let's celebrate together the, the uh, outworkings of, the result of atonement, that we are together united in worship of God. And then notice in 5 and 6, this joyful and fearful anticipation. They bring these things to the front of the tent, the, of the tent of meeting. The congregation draws near. Moses says, the glory of the Lord will appear to you. 
there's lots of things that we anticipate. Maybe we're at a concert and it's our favorite band and the, the opening act is gone and the lights go down and it, it, it's almost time. Maybe it's an athletic event that we're at in person or we're watching our TV. We have our snacks and everything's ready to go and maybe it's a big event like uh, some of the once a year events and maybe it's a, a, a the Super Bowl or a NASCAR race or whatever your thing is and there's been tons of commentary, days and weeks of pontifications, but now it's ready. The anticipation is here. Maybe it's something that is an event or the arrival of something, and you've circled it on the calendar, and you're counting down the days, 10, 9, 8. That feeling of anticipation, you can feel it in this passage. The, the, the people have gathered. The tabernacle has all been constructed according to the commandments that were brought down by Moses from Mount Sinai. It's all been done down to the very little uh, chains that made up the very ephod of the priest's garments. All the small details and the big details have been done precisely. It's all laid out. The offerings have all been explained. The priests have all consecrated themselves for a full week. And now, now God is going to show up. And there's joy, but there's also fear. A proper reverential awe for God. They're aware of the power of God. These individuals had a front row seat for the ten plagues that swept through the nation of Egypt and did not touch their nation. They were there the night that the blood was supposed to be on the door and every house that it was not, there was wailing that it's impossible to describe with words. The firstborn children across a nation killed in one night. The mourning, weeping and wailing. They were there. They stood at the, at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army behind them hemmed in on all sides in the Red Sea in front of them. They watched Moses raise his staff and God parted the waters. They knew the power of God. And that power is going to be for them on their side. But also... If that power is not for them, as Moses has said in chapter 8 and verse 35, death could easily be a result. It is a fearful thing and a joyful thing to be in the presence of God and have God's presence in us. Notice in the second place then in verses 7 through 21, the order of worship. And it flows exactly as it was prescribed. In verses 7 through 11, there is the sin offering. Confession and atonement on behalf of the priests. And in verse 15, confession and atonement, sin offering offered on behalf of the people. Confession and atonement then is the first step in worship. Or certainly one of the first steps in worship. And then the burnt offering, verses 12 through 14, on behalf of the priests. And in verse 16, on behalf of the people. That full and free commitment. My sins have been taken care of. My sins have been atoned for and paid for by the blood and now I give everything to the one who saved me. And then there is thanksgiving in verse 17. The grain offering is offered with the oil and the frankincense and the salt that is offered up to God. Thanks be to God for all that he has done for us and all that he means to us. And then the celebration in verses 18 through 21 is offered. The peace offering, the fellowship offering, these offerings are offered and all of these things now are done. And notice it's not just spontaneous. It's not done in the order that the priest wants to. It's not just throwing a bunch of stuff together. It's prescribed. It's serious. And it has a reason for the flow. 
we must always come to God in humility, with confession, knowing that our only hope is atonement through the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to commemorate that in just a few moments. We then must come to God fully and freely. God, everything that I am and everything that I have is from you and I give it back to you. And then we thank God, we praise him for all that he is and all that he has done. And then we celebrate. The, 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 the singing and the prayers and the reading of the word is celebration. Thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you've done. What a blessing it is to know the one true God and be known by the one true God. Which leads us to our third and final point this morning, the blessing of worship in 22 through 24. This is a blessing-drenched passage of Scripture. There's blessings everywhere. Notice that Aaron first blesses Israel. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. It's quite possible that he said over them the words of Numbers 6, 24 and 20, through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. And the rest of that blessing that is there in Numbers 6. Aaron blesses the people. Significant. God blessed Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And you see God's blessing down through the book of Genesis. You also see the results of not having God's blessing. Esau mourns because he does not have God's blessing. The blessing of God on the people of Israel and not on the people of Egypt as Exodus begins. And this blessing a motif, this blessing theme works its way through here. And now Aaron stands and he blesses the people. Notice then at verse 23 that I believe Moses blesses Aaron. Notice what happens. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. This is the first time, the first time that Aaron enters into the tabernacle. This is the first time that Aaron enters into the tent of meeting. Moses had met with God on the mountain and in the tent of meeting. Moses had been in the presence of God to the point where his skin actually glowed. His face shone so much that it freaked people out and he had to wear a veil. Moses knew what it was to be in the presence of God. Moses asked God, show me your presence. And God said, I can't show you my full glory. It would kill you, but I will put you and hide you and you can see the backside of my glory as I pass by you. The revelation of God's glory had not been Aaron's to see, and now Moses takes his brother, and then in this act of passing on his mantle to his brother, he takes Aaron with him into the tent of meeting. You'll note in these sin offerings, there was not a need for blood to be entered into the tabernacle, because Aaron had not yet entered it. But after Aaron enters it and serves therein, the sin offering blood must be applied to the curtain and the altar of incense. This is the first time Aaron enters in, and Moses blesses his brother by doing this. He takes him into the tent of meeting to meet with God, which I think then in the next part of verse 23, which is not explicit in the text, but I think it's implied that God blesses them both. To be in the tent of meeting in the presence of God is to be blessed. Moses knows this. Aaron knows this. And perhaps Aaron even more acutely than Moses. Aaron had sinned. And not just a private oopsie. He had publicly led an entire nation to worship an idol as if that was worshiping the one true God. 
And here he is, in the tent of meeting in the presence of God, unholy, standing in the presence of a holy God. Paul never forgot that. And you can see his progression. He's the least of the apostles. He's the least of the saints. And in his final letter, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul knew who he was. And he was so grateful the rest of his life for the, for the, the fact that he could be in the presence of God and God's presence could be in him. Notice then, they both come out of the tent of meeting and they bless the people together. Both bless Israel. Aaron blesses the people. Moses blesses his brother Aaron. God blesses them both and then they come out of the tent of meeting and they bless the people of Israel. There's blessing flowing everywhere. See, our culture and our society would say, if you want blessing, follow our ideology, follow our way of looking at things. These things, these things will lead us to utopia. These things will lead to blessing. And mark it down. They can't, and they never will. The thoughts and imaginations of the human mind cannot lead to blessing. Only the blesser, capital B, can bless, and only living in worship of him can lead to blessing. He spoke all things into existence. He knows how they're supposed to operate. And every time we operate contrary to that, we find ourselves divided and destroyed. Living in worship of God is not oppressive and it is not stifling. It is freeing and it's unifying and it's such a blessing. There's a blessing of Aaron and Moses to the people. Notice then that God blesses Israel with his presence. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. God shows up. And what a fearful thing, what an awesome thing, but what a blessing that is. Our God is with us. That's a key reality throughout Scripture. God with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve removed from God's presence. God with the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. God with the nation of Israel. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. God's with the people. He shows up and they visibly see his presence. That same powerful, awesome presence that they were scared of when it was on Mount Sinai is now right there in the middle of all of their tents in the tent of meeting. Fire comes out and consumes the burnt offering on the bronze altar. And so what is the response? The people praise God. They shouted when they saw it and fell on their faces. Some English translations say shouted with joy. And there is a sense here that that was the first reality when they saw that God was in their midst, they rejoiced. And then almost immediately, almost simultaneously, they realized the awesome weight of that and they prostrated themselves immediately. It is a joyful thing, but it is a fearful thing to be in the presence of the thrice holy God, the one true God. What joy there is, what blessing there is in worship that this God goes before us any of the battles that we might fight, this God is in our midst. 
any of the struggles we may have, this God is in our midst. And when this life is all over, this God will take us to be with him. What a blessing that is. But oh, what weight there is to the glory of God. We do not fool around with the glory of God. We do not treat it carelessly. It is a weighty thing. So what is our response? Our response is, are we living in the blessing of worship? To those that are non-Christians that know you, would they believe that your Christianity is a source of blessing to you? Or would they see your Christianity as onerous, as a duty or an obligation? I'm doing this because I have to. I'm not really into prayer that much. Don't have a lot of time. Very busy, after all. Important things. But if I have to, I guess that I will pray. At least three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, and supper. I'm not really into reading. I don't read. And the Word of God, particularly. And I mean, Pastor Jeff, getting us to go through the book of Leviticus really was not a good idea. But I, if I have to, I don't really get it. I don't understand it. I'd rather watch the movie, but I guess I'll read if I have to. I don't really want to honor God with my finances. I don't have a lot, by the way, at least according to my estimation. And I really have all kinds of other things that need to be done with them. But if I have to, I guess I'll give some to God if there's a bit left over. I know I'm supposed to love, so I'll love the people that are easy to love, but that guy, or that woman, not sure about that. I guess if I have to, but I don't have to like them. I'll go on Sunday if I have to. I'd rather stay home in my pajamas and watch YouTube, but if I have to, I guess I'll go. If I go, I don't have to like it. How much would non-Christians look at your expression of Christianity and go, that's something that I want in my life? There's blessing there. Do we realize each and every day where we would be without the blessing of God in our lives? And therefore, do we live every day in the blessing of worship? It's a blessing to be able to confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a blessing to be known by the thrice holy creator of the universe. It's a blessing to know as we're about to celebrate next Sunday and then the following Sunday on Good Friday that this God and very God nailed, was nailed to a cross and stood there between heaven and earth and bore the penalty of our sin. That is a blessing to be known by him and to know him. It is a blessing to know the love of God. It is a blessing to know the grace and the mercy of God. It is a blessing to have the provision of God in our lives. It is a blessing that in the storms of life, and they are many and some of them have come as a result of knowing God, that God is with us in those. It is a blessing to know that the good work that he's begun in us, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. And it's good to know, and it's a blessing to know, that the one who makes the promises keeps the promises, and the one who called us to himself through Christ by the Spirit will bring us all the way home. That's a blessing. Are we living in the light of that? One final reality. This fire never went out 
when this fire came forth from God himself and consumed this burnt offering, you remember from previous passages that the priests were instructed, never let the fire go out. There was a burnt offering every morning. The flames were stoked from the embers of this fire. And then every night, just before sundown, another burnt offering was offered. And the embers were kept through the evening. And if they moved camp, embers were kept from this fire. So that every sacrifice, every sacrifice, sacrifice from this moment on, was sacrificed with the fire of the glory of God. That's blessing, to be lived, living in the presence of God. Let's tell our faces. <laughs> let's, let's live that way this week and always. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the blessing of worshiping you, for being called into worship of you. It does not stifle us or cause us to be who uh, we really should be, but instead it actually makes us who you have made us to be. It, it makes us compassionate and kind and truthful and loving and merciful and gracious and gentle and good and holy and righteous, all the things that you are, Father. May we not begrudge our relationship with you. May we not be thankful for our salvation, but that's in the future anyway, and so as I go about my daily life, I don't think too much about it. No, Father, may we live every moment in the reality of you in us. Christ in us, Father, how glorious that is. May we always live in worship of you, and may that be a blessing. And so may Sunday not be the foundation for our worship the rest of the week. But may it be an expression of the worship that we have offered to you throughout the week. May it not be a beginning, an adrenaline rush, an injection of uh, Holy Spirit's enthusiasm, but may it instead be a culmination of the worship of our hearts. May it not be manufactured. May it be real. May it bless us and those around us. It matters that we gather for many reasons, but certainly that in the gathering, we remind those around us that they are not the only one living in the blessing of worship. That there is a host of individuals here in Charlottetown and across the island and across Canada and across the world that also worship you in holiness, in spirit, and in truth. And what a blessing that is. Father, even, and perhaps especially to see video of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine worshiping you, the same God we worship. Different circumstances, hopefully the same worship. What a blessing it is to live in worship of you. May we see that 
recognize that and share that with all those around us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.